our Old Testament lesson, Exodus 14, verses 26 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the horse of, host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their left, right hand, and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel from that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servants, Moses. Our second reading, Mark chapter 9. We're thinking today about belief or saving faith. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 9. Verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now our third and final scripture reading from Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law 
who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share, who, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Let's read together now our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 7. Question 20. Are all people then saved through Christ? just as they were lost through Adam. No, only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merits. Question 22. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And then question 23 moves on to ask the question, what are these articles? And then we've already recited that in our first service, so we will forego that here. But those articles of the Creed then uh, provide us with that summary of the biblical gospel message. So may God now add his blessing to the teaching of his word. As we begin, I'd like to direct our attention back to something I've mentioned recently, but really want to do that again. And boys and girls, I'm especially interested in you paying close attention right now, okay? Because there is something that the Bible speaks about that can be a little bit tricky, but I think you kids can probably get it. And that is, it talks about that there are two atoms in the biblical story. There are two now, you might be thinking to yourself, there's not two Adams in the Bible. There's only the one back in the Garden of Eden, right? Wrong. Who is the second Adam? Jesus. Thank you, Haddon. Exactly. Jesus is the second Adam. Now, why do we say that about Jesus being the second Adam? Was he created from the dust 
just like the first? No, not because of that. That's not why he's the second Adam. Why then do we speak about him like that? Well, here's the reason. The first Adam was the representative for all of mankind. Let me say that again. He was the representative for all of mankind. That means that everyone who's born, apart from Jesus, is a son or daughter of Adam. If you've read the Narnia series, you'll remember that oftentimes they speak about sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, right? It's the language used there. Okay, because all man is uh, descends from Adam, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. He becomes a second Adam. He's not represented by the first. Okay? He was not represented by the first because he's a second Adam to be himself the head of a new human race. Now, <clears throat> a couple important places just to note for you. So if you're an adult taking notes, worth just noting for yourself that the key text that we would turn to, I'm not going to do that right now, Romans 5 talks about two Adams, the disobedience of one being credited to all mankind, the obedience of the second Adam, that being given to all mankind. Justification, okay? Romans 5, very key about two Adams. 1 Corinthians 15 is another key text just to put in your minds, okay? We're going to understand this is important to the biblical text. Paul in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Two Adams. But it's not just with Paul. Luke also sees that very clearly. Luke gives his genealogy in Luke chapter 3, and his genealogy goes backwards in reverse order. It goes all the way back to the most ancient descendant, naming Adam the Son of God. The guess who's the very next one mentioned? Jesus. The reverse order of the genealogy brings your focus to Adam the Son of God. And then who is presented in chapter 4, the very next verse? Jesus, the Son of God. And what does Jesus, the Son of God, do in Luke 4? He's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Okay? So this is an important um, theme in the biblical story of seeing two Adams. Now, as we think about these two Adams, we think about us being united to these, one of these two Adams. United to one of two Adams. Every human has a representative. Everyone does. Okay? So, you're either represented by the first Adam. That's bad. Boys and girls, do you want to be represented by the first Adam? Say no. 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 You want to be represented by the second Adam, right? Why? Because he was obedient for you, right? Because he bore your sins on the cross. So that's how he represented you. Okay? So, when we then think about this union with Jesus, union with Jesus, this is more for the adults here, there are a few different layers that are worth being mindful of. On one hand, the biblical text tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1, okay? So there's a, a union with respect to God's decree. Some call it a decretal union. It's a union in terms of God's purpose. 
that even before you were created, in the decree of God, he chose you to be joined to Jesus. Okay? So we call that a decretal union. Second, we can speak about a representative union. Jesus representing us when he walked on earth. Okay? He obeyed for us. He died for us. We can even say he's represented in heaven now too. He is our representative outside us. And by virtue of that representative union that God has established, you are joined to him. He's your representative. But then there's a third layer of this union that then follows from the previous two. And that is what we call the mystical union. The mystical union. Where the Holy Spirit is poured out in time, and by faith in time, you go from being united to Adam to being joined vitally to Jesus. Okay? You're joined to Him by the Spirit's operative work in that instant, and then forevermore you're joined to Jesus. And then you partake of all His benefits. And you commune with Him. You're joined with Him. Those benefits can be either forensic, like justification and part of adoption, or those benefits can be transformative, sanctification, glorification, conforming us into the Son's image, the other part of our adoption. And so we want to recognize two atoms. And we have this robust view of our union with Christ, the second Adam. Now, briefly, this, ha this union happens by faith, okay? By grace through faith, the mystical union is created. By grace through faith, the mystical union is created. So, first point, saving faith receives promises. Saving faith receives promises. Now, the question here is this. Who needs saving faith? Did Jesus need saving faith? No. The sinner needs saving faith. The sinner needs it. Now, did Jesus have some kind of faith? Yes, he had faith. But it's not saving faith. He was not in need of salvation. He was not a sinner. He's not relying upon free grace. He is rather obeying the law and providing merits. Okay? So when we're talking about saving faith... We're talking about sinners trusting in promises of free grace. Now, Romans 4 shows very clearly, as it, Paul is describing faith there, he's really focusing on saving faith, okay? Which is why he can pit saving faith over against the law, okay? Now, we understand that we have a general faith in all God's word. The Catechism affirms that. We believe the truth of God's commands. We be the, believe the truth of God's law, but we don't trust in it. Does that make sense? You get the difference there. If you trust in the commands for your life, you're doomed. But if you trust in the promises of free grace, well, then we find our salvation in Christ. So Paul's focusing in Romans 4 on that narrow view of saving faith for the sinner of receiving a promise trusting in a promise okay after all the law commands you to do something 
You can believe that's a true command. You don't want to trust in it, in it, as a sinner. That's bad. But you believe the command is true. It's good. It is holy. You don't rest there, though. Because the law says, do this and you shall live. You don't want to rest in that. So you can say this. The law says, achieve. The promises say, receive. Very different posture that faith has with respect to the promises. The gospel tells us to stop working to receive something freely granted to us by grace through faith. So our first point, saving faith receives promises. Second, saving faith receives Christ. Just briefly, just want to note this interesting text from the end of Exodus 14. This language of the Israelites beholding those waters that were once a wall coming back and crashing down upon their enemies. Recall how Pharaoh is that type and shadow, in, in a way, of Satan. And that the, the serpent and the seed of the serpent are then being crushed by those waters. They behold the work of God, the salvation of God. And what do the Israelites do? They believe in the Lord. And they believe in Moses. They trust in Moses. That's interesting, isn't it? Helps us to see that Moses is a type and shadow of Jesus. And Paul brings this out, actually, in 1 Corinthians 10. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that those Jews were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses. That's the same language that Paul uses elsewhere about us being baptized into Christ. They're baptized into Moses. How can you say that? He's a type and shadow of Jesus. That's why you can say that. And so they're trusting in Moses. By trusting in Moses, they're trusting in Jesus. He's a type and shadow of Jesus. They were baptized into Moses. And so there's that sense in which they're then baptized into Jesus. And that's faith union with Christ. Praise God for that type and shadow of the Red Sea. That salvation that's been worked for us through the cross and resurrection. Saving faith receives Jesus. Our third point. Weak faith receives Jesus. A weak faith receives Jesus. We see this very clearly in our Mark chapter 9 reading. Recall, Jesus is not terribly happy. It's a faithless generation. That includes everyone standing before him. These were not people who have done a bunch of good stuff. They don't have any merit to commend themselves. This is a faithless and twisted generation. And then he goes up to the guy who's got his son who needs to be healed. Hey, gee, if you can do anything, could you just throw me a solid here? You know, like, if you can. Right? This man is not some pinnacle of faith. It's like you have you know, some awful medical diagnosis. You go to a doctor. Hey, if you can do anything, I'd love that. This is like, this is my last ditch effort. That's what's going on with his dad in the story. Last ditch effort. If you can, could you help me out? Probably can't, but eh. I believe help my unbelief. He has weak faith. And notice what Jesus does. With that weak faith, that man found life. 
the signs and wonders are given to teach us about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus pouring out life in response to a weak faith, a faithless generation, gives me encouragement at least. Because when we think about our catechism's answer about what saving faith is, it's giving you the ideal, this sure knowledge, this wholehearted trust. The problem is sometimes my faith isn't quite so wholehearted. Sometimes I'm struggling. Sometimes I'm doubting. But the catechism gives us the ideal which we strive for. We see with Jesus that even a weak faith finds life in his ministry because it's not about your strength of faith. It is about the strength of your Savior. And he is pleased in the context of your weakness. Boys and girls, Jesus is pleased, even when you have a weak faith, to forgive your sins and to rescue you from the grave one day. You don't need to be a perfect Christian. You don't. Now, we want to try to be good. We want to try to keep God's law, but we're going to fall short. Jesus is okay with that. Why? Because he paid for your sins on the cross. And he's okay with you having a weak faith if you're trusting the promises. Why? Because it's not about the strength of your faith at all. It's about the strength of, your prom- of the promises that God gives you. In these things we find all of our hope, all of our trust. Amen.